Hey, it's Cambrio from CambrioMusic.com, and today I have a wonderful interview with Eric Alper. Eric is a music correspondent, blogger, radio host, and former director of media relations at E1 Music Canada. He now runs a music public relations company called That Eric Alper, and is the host of the Eric Alper Show on Sirius XM. Thanks for coming by, and let's get started. Uh, I've always had a love of music, but I can't play an instrument if my life depended on it. When I was uh, eight years old, I saw the movie called American Hot Wax, and it told the story of Cleveland disc jockey Alan Freed, who coined the term rock and roll, and broke down the segregated audience at concerts. And um, as an eight-year-old watching Jerry Lee Lewis and Chuck Berry on the big screen and actors portraying um, Danny and the Juniors and Little Richard. Um, it blew my little, it blew my little mind. It, it was like people who go see Star Wars and become lifelong fans of, of the series. This was my Star Wars. These people were suddenly my heroes and people who I wanted to hang out with and pretend to be friends with. And uh, later on, when I went to university, you know, I've always loved the idea of the media. I loved reading about the entertainment industry and especially about the music industry. After university, I started my own record label and booking agent and PR company, um, which quickly I dropped the record label and booking agent part of it and just became a publicist. Um, And at the time, back in 1994, when I first started that, um, I was just, I was cheap. I, I figured out how much the other publicists were charging and I, I just had three rules, do it better, do it faster and do it cheaper than anyone else. Um, and as I learned all of my mistakes and how not to do them again, you know, the bands and the artists I was working with just got bigger and bigger and better and better. And I, I kind of came along with them, with them for the ride. And so, you know, all these years later, here I am still, Still trying hard not to make mistakes, but also, um, uh, you know, just working with artists and bands of of all genres of music. So, you know, it it was something like a lifelong dream and a lifelong passion. What was that called, that movie that you said kind of started it for you? Yeah, it's called American Hot Wax. That sounds like some some pretty uh, heavy uh, viewing for eight years old. Oh, it blew my mind. It, it was it was like, you know, look, when you first see Star Wars as a kid, you have no idea that there's other planets other than maybe the one that you're on. You know, the, uh, you have no idea about guns. You have no idea about shooting. You have no idea about, about good and evil on the big screen, except for what you're told by your parents. And for me, I grew up in a, in a home full of music. My grandfather had uh, a bar in Toronto called Grossman Tavern. That's on Spadina Avenue in right. Toronto. Um, and it's still there. And uh, so I remember as a kid and as a teenager hanging out there, hanging out with musicians and, and realizing that music, it really isn't about music. It's more of a, of a community spirit. It's, it's a gathering place. It, it makes people feel good. And, and uh, so for me, it, it, was, it always blows my mind whenever I hear a great new artist or a great album because I can't do it. I mean, I, I have no skills still to this day of how to play an instrument. You stick me in a recording studio, I wouldn't know the first thing that the buttons do. I have no no question. I have no technical ability whatsoever. So for me, I'm still that eight-year-old kid, 
marveling at musicians, wondering how are they doing this? Well, so but you know, it sounds good though to you personally, though, right? Well, I was smart enough to get in this business, and I'm too dumb to ever get out. When, 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 uh, when maybe I should have. But it, it, it's just a question that I knew I was always one of the lucky ones, being able to to do what I love to do for a living. You know, the the money was always secondary to me. I just wanted to to do something in this industry, and I'm so glad that you know, even during a pandemic, even during the riots, whatever whatever negative stuff is going on, or whatever positive stuff is going on, I'm I've still kept a very uh, cool, cool head about everything, I hope, and just kind of, you know, just helping artists get heard and seen. So back in 94, were you on the phone a lot? Like, how did you kind of reach out in those pre-internet days? Oh, we faxed a lot. We actually, we actually waited until, you know, we, we were out every single night looking at bands and, and devouring the Toronto music scene and going to music conferences wherever we could afford to do it. But a lot of it was, uh, was faxing press releases off all day and all night throughout the middle of the night. And yeah, picking up the phone and calling. Now it's like when my phone rings, it's, it's always bad news. So right. there, there's a, you know, everything is, is by email. Everything is, uh, uh, is through, through the web. And uh, um, so, you know, there's just different forms of communication. But now like I get hit up, um, I, I get hit up for interview requests from Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and through TikTok and through email and phone. So, um, you know, I try to keep, I try to keep everything all towards email just, just for my own sanity, but certainly there's a lot of different ways where bands can, uh, uh, can get the word out about their music and the media to reach out to those bands too. So are you familiar with uh, Johnny Dover courts? Yeah. Yeah. I just did an interview with him a couple of weeks ago for his brand new book. Yeah, so I've read through that. It's a pretty incredible book. There's so much depth in, in what he talks about there. Yeah, you know, there, there, there's another book called Have Not Been the Same, which covers, um, it covers around 1985 to 1995. And, and for me and a lot of the people that, that are my age and the, the music that we grew up with, that was where the, this, this, this wave of Queen Street um, artists hit. Uh, Pursuit of Happiness, Rough Trade, Blue Rodeo, Big Sugar, uh, Molly Johnson, the 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 Bamboo Club, uh, Grossman Tavern, Lee's Palace, The Elma Combo, Silver Dollar, Cameron, uh, Bovine Sex Club. A lot of a lot of that, a lot of these really cool scenes came out of there. Then of course you had like wherever you seemed to be, you had Arcade Fire in Montreal, you had Sloan and Eric Strip in Halifax. Um, but reading that book, um, I told him it's like it's going to be you know the the Toronto version of Have Not Been the Same, which is long being revered as you know the music industry bible for when it comes to the story being told for music in Canada I loved it I thought it was a great book yeah so when I talked to him I asked about the reopening and kind of refurnishing of El Combo, and he was a little apprehensive about the whole thing I don't want to put words into his mouth but what's your kind of take on that um well you know it, it, it even though even Michael Weckerly and his and his amazing team there will 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 admit that there's been a lot of stop and starts um for the Elmo combo um you know the last time that they were put to open was around the time of canadian music week um in may of this year only a couple of weeks ago uh but obviously that's not going to happen um i i my guess is probably not until 2021 like the rest of the music venue i just don't see any possibility of venues that hold more than 200 people 
uh, to be allowed to have shows. And I don't even think it has anything to, anything to do with, with having a, you know, having a pill or having a needle or having a, uh, an answer to the coronavirus. I, I think that just for a purely financial or business sense, it's going to be really tough to try to get people out to things when this is going to be the new normal. Um, I know that Michael Weckerly and his team really want to get things going. Um, the, the third floor studio is probably in a much different headspace because they don't need to have 200 people up there. They can have one person or they can have two or three people in there and, and still kind of go within whatever city of Toronto rules are going to be when it comes to congregating together again. But I don't really see having shows in any venue for a long, long, long time. Have you watched any of the uh, quarantine uh, at home videos for music? Yeah, I've, I, I watched a couple of them. I watched the Bruce Springsteen one, which I thought was amazing. Uh, the Indigo Girl did an amazing one where they put the spotlight and benefit show for the Honor the Earth campaign that raised over $200,000. Uh, a number of my artists have actually done at living room concerts, whether it's Chris Burkett um, did one, Miles Goodwin from Maple Wine is, is on there a couple of times a week doing it. Um, and that's part of my job um, that I've seemingly made for myself is that, you know, trying to keep the artists busy every single day, doing something fun, uh, helping them put on those living room shows or working with nonprofit charitable organizations and putting the spotlight on them on their social media accounts. So it's not just stream my new song, buy my new album, watch my video, watch me here, watch me there. I think people are going to suffer for a little bit of a burnout until they realize that this might be the only kind of live music that they get for, for a while. Yeah, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges getting people to watch those versus getting people to come out to a show? Um, I, I think one, one giant similarity between the two of them is that we're all in competition with with everything else that's happening in the world. And I, and I truly mean everything else that's happening in the world. Um, it, it's one thing to be a really great band and have 40 or 50 or 60 or 100 million views of their video on YouTube, but do you have the reputation and enough as a great live performer for somebody to part with $100 or $200 or $65 of their money? So, you know, I think one of the challenges is that the longer that we're inside, the longer that the state of emergency continues. And as of this morning, in fact, province of Ontario has extended the state of emergency until June the 30th. So we're going to have to get used to becoming viewers and readers for a while longer. And that means that an artist that wants to go live on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or TikTok or Twitch or any other platform or Twitch, um, they're going to, they're in competition with everything else that's out there. If you're an indie band, your competition is Bruce Springsteen that night. Um, if you're an indie band, your competition is Pearl Jam that are doing concerts now online or the Foo Fighters and Dave Girl. So I think part of it is that, you know, you can, as opposed to playing a live show and only really comp, you know, trying to look at your competition as another artist within that city for the dollar of people that are willing to go out even before the coronavirus. Now we're in competition with Netflix. We're all trying to compete against the 55 million songs that are available on Spotify. If you're a new artist, why should anybody listen to your new song when they've got the Beatles catalog at their fingertips for free? And that's not a knock against anybody new, but that's exactly the kind of thing that today's artists are battling and have been for the last uh, you know, eight or 10 years since Spotify started creeping up. It's like, you know, your competition, regardless how 
what kind of music you play. Your competition is Lady Gaga and Justin Bieber and Alicia Cara and The Weeknd and uh, and Drake and and everybody else and Ed Sheeran and Post Malone and the Chainsmokers and all those artists because they're out there with a lot more money than you are trying to market what they have over somebody like you that's still struggling to stay alive. Yeah, I think that one big thing is that these artists may have a whole analytics team who know exactly what to put out at what time, what keywords, and how to do it, right? Yeah, they've also got a pretty unlimited budget compared to these indie artists where they can ram something down down all of their fans' throats. You know, when you're playing, whether you know, you've got a thousand fans on Facebook or 25 million fans like Rihanna, you still have to pay in order to have your fans being able to view your post. That's the story of Facebook and Instagram. It's a social media platform that's designed to sell advertising and for the content providers to buy their way into their fan stream. Um, and that changed literally overnight, only a couple of years ago. Um, so not only do they have unlimited, you know, it's not really unlimited budget, but, you know, a couple of, couple of million dollars just for advertising if you're Lady Gaga, they can reach farther than you, better than you, faster than you, with more people on their team than you. When you're a major label artist that has a worldwide deal through Universal or Sony or Warner, you don't have three people working with you to, to make your album a huge success. You have a couple of thousand people all working alongside you to make sure that your album is number one in the country in you know 125 different countries around the world so it's just you know a lot of these artists are realizing just what a small piece of the pie they really own but that doesn't mean that they can't promote well it doesn't mean that they can't come correct in terms of a value proposition that they're bringing to the artist but you know it's always gonna it was always an uphill battle this is just a little bit tougher because the audience is definitely more they're not as contained as it used to be where everybody was watching much music and everybody read Rolling Stone, the spin magazine, you know, now people are reading 150,000 different music blogs and, and giving their trust over to a Spotify playlister who might not have any friends in real life, but seemingly has 15,000 followers on Spotify. Yeah. I mean, some of the things that it's hard because I've even seen some stories of individual people or, no one really knows who it is, like uploading like pitch shifted versions of songs and just getting massive amounts of views for seemingly copyrighted material, but no one can pick it up quick enough. Yeah, you know, that, that I, 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 I kind of face that a couple of times a year whenever an artist will reach out and contact me and give me their social media numbers and I'll see that they've got 500 or 600,000 views on YouTube and, and 45 people streaming their music on Spotify. It just doesn't happen like that. Um, eventually, you know, when you are an artist and you're, you're trying to fool people into thinking that you're bigger than you actually are, it's always gonna fail because you're not fooling anybody. Uh, myself and, and the rest of the music industry and entertainment industry, we know how fans think and react because we are them. If I find a great new video of a band or an artist that I love, the first thing I'm gonna go to is Google to find me where they are on Instagram, where are they on Spotify, how many more songs am I missing out on, how many more videos. And if it looks like that they're spending money only on one platform, well, that's the first thing I'm gonna find out is like, well, how did they get all of these fans? And for the most part, it's like, yeah, we paid a company to go and do this and they got us promotion. It's like, yeah, okay, cool. But don't think that that's gonna get you a booking agent or a manager or a record deal because they're just gonna see through that. You know, when it comes to, you know, trying to fool Spotify into having 
you know, the, the, the fake features or, or naming songs after artists just so that they can get the plays. I mean, when it comes down to money and taking money out of the legitimate artist, Spotify is going to catch you. There's no way that they're going to be continuing to give money to anybody after a short period of time because their algorithm is going to say, hey, something is really, really weird here. This artist went from this to that. Um, the amount of data that they, that they have would blow anybody's mind. They know by postal code right. who is the biggest artist in, in, on that block. They know that for the Spotify playlisters, when they have an internal playlist that is 50 songs long, they know how many times somebody streamed the, the 13th track and when they bring it up to number 11, they know what the difference is and they know how to maneuver around putting the best songs first or, or anything like that. There, you, you, you're not going to be able to fool Spotify. You know, you're not that smart. I did see the one story. I think it was a, uh, when Justin Bieber was sort of preparing his new album. I don't know if it was him or someone on his team put out some things to kind of yep. something like uh, stream the music overnight. Yeah. Yeah, they, I've seen that happen before. I've also seen some artists, you need to have a certain, a certain amount of seconds until Spotify will deem it a, a stream. So I've heard of artists that try to rig the system and have 400, 500, 600 songs on a compilation album that are about 16 seconds long or 30 seconds long and just have literally hundreds of computers um, stream that album in order to get the payout. So whether that song is 31 seconds or whether right. that song is 14 minutes long, you still get the exact same amount of, of payout. So people are trying to rig the, the, the system. And, uh, you know, I, I just tend to put my faith that, you know, that people aren't going to be able to solve it all that quick. Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting because there's so much integration now because it's felt like years ago, even in the 80s or 90s, like people were kind of into their genre and stuck to what they liked. But now everyone just kind of goes wherever, wherever they want. Yeah, you can probably thank the iPod for that, where for the first time since the Walkman, you actually got to bring your music with you in a portable device. But um, the big difference between the Walkman and the iPod was that you can now have, you know, at the time, like 1600 songs. And you didn't have to tell anybody what songs they were because you can buy them in the comfort and the privacy of your own home. So whether you had to kind of, you know, carry five or six cassettes or bring your CD, you know, box in the car with you, um, you can now have the ability to listen to songs rather than purchase the whole album, as opposed to spending $29, $30 on a CD at the time. So that led to the whole bleeding of, of people's love of music. That was probably already there, but you kind of brought it to the forefront. So you could have a Judas Priest song and you could have a, uh, a Duran Duran song and a Flock of Seagull song and a Chuck Berry song. And, you know, that generation grew up and had their own kids and those people don't have a difference. They just want good music. So you're right. Like when I was in high school, the stoners would never hang out with the metalheads. And the metalheads looked all the way down on the people who liked Duran Duran and New Wave music. And those, those cultures never, never met. Now they're, they're the complete lines are are blurred and it's it's amazing because good music is good music and even it seems like you know the single has been the new thing that these collaboration songs yeah it's interesting when the singles started to become more popular than the album it would just kind of harken back to you know rock and roll in the 1950s and 60s where you released a single and then you released another single 
and then you released another single. And it wasn't until like the mid 1960s when the Beatles and Jimi Hendrix and uh, uh, the Rolling Stones kind of brought albums to the forefront to the rock audiences. And, uh, you know, back then you didn't get to record an album until you had three singles that were extremely popular. And now with the, with, you know, the complete eradication pretty much of, of the physical format. There are artists that I'm working with right now that have never made an album or an EP, right. but they're about 19, 20 singles deep into their career. Most of the time, you know, the, the sense of discovery for most people out there that's not involved with music on a day-to-day basis, they don't have time to listen to 75 minutes worth of new music for somebody that they've never heard of. It's hard enough to get them to listen to one song, forget about listening to 12 or 13. So the artists are getting smarter with, maneuvering and working with the uh with the amount of time that people want to spend consuming any kind of media you know um it's why a movie like the irishman yeah with martin scorsese three and a half hours long was such a miracle to some people because you know to get somebody to watch three and a half hours of anything these days is is a huge deal rather than splicing it up into 20 you know 22 minute small bite episodes Right, right. I was talking to somebody, I don't know if you're familiar with him, uh, Rainbow Sun Franks. He's a musician. He was on Much Music years ago. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember, yeah. Yeah, he's a great guy. And um, we were talking about some kind of trends in music and how kind of the popular music of the day is overwhelmingly rap at the moment. Yeah, for the first time um, last year, rap and urban music and hip-hop overtook rock and roll. Um, as the most listened to genre of music, and they were smart. You know those, you know those people who who play, you know rap and hip hop and create beats got on social media pretty early, uh, way ahead of of most. They used platforms like SoundCloud, especially where uh, last year their top fifty songs were completely made up of you know, the genre of, of urban music. I know it's broad ranging, but, and, and that's never happened before. And uh, that helped create the industry that we're in right now, which is that everybody needs to have a feature. Everybody needs to have, you know, the chorus in, in the first 15, 20 seconds. Or, or a diss track. That, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, or a diss track or, or putting up just the stems of the track or putting up the beats or putting up, the acapella version of it so they can get remixed around the world. You know, they were pretty crafty people who, who, who saw that they didn't actually need to fight to get on commercial radio. They could actually build even a bigger audience on, on social media and online platforms. Right. And it's funny because he says, really, if you look back, it's almost been since the early 2000s, like everyone saw this coming. Um, I, I think it's, I, I think with hindsight being 2020, the one thing that the music industry tends not to do very, very well is predict what's going to happen down the road. If they were amazing at it, and I put myself in this in this industry as well, if they were amazing at it, all of our all of our the signings that we do would be million sellers. Right. Um, but we we can't. I mean, even when even when a big art even when a big label like Spot like Sony or Warner or universal music when they sign a brand new artist let's say it's a 17 year old kid from toronto by the time sometime that they have their song out it could be eight or nine months down the road which is an entire generation long for sometimes and some people in some genres of music you know looking back yeah it's easy to see where those mistakes were made the complete music industry burying their their head in the sand when it came to napster 
not realizing right. that the CD format wasn't going to last forever, even though that most formats have a good 20-year shelf life. You know, they thought that the riches and the partying and the big boats and the big bonuses and the people paying $3 for a CD was going to last forever. And it took Apple and iTunes to say, we can actually play within a different system. Right. Um, and the music industry fought tooth and nail to try to get Apple to not sell songs separately. And Apple convinced them that they could actually make more money this way. And they did. And they have for a long, long time until until you know the music industry the, the music streaming services slowly crept up and up and up and not hitting a turning point and not hitting that tipping point while cd sales were dropping and that closed record stores when you close record stores you end up with amazon and one or two or three places to buy music and that's it so while the music streaming services were creeping up in terms of subscription the actual physical sales were dropping way faster and that's something that the music industry never predicted Right. Um, even going back, what were some of your first concert experiences? Um, I saw ABBA when I was seven years old, and it blew my collective little mind. Oh, just um, just a year I, before the movie then? Yeah, so that was the uh, concert tour. Um, they actually filmed that, uh, a number of, of scenes in Canada. So I, I went with my parents, I saw ABBA. And then a couple of years later, I ended up seeing Genesis in concert with my sister, because at the time, and still, uh, my favorite all-time band. And then... Uh, I saw there, there's a Kingswood Music Theater used to be part of Canada's Wonderland. So when Canada's Wonderland opened back in 1981, they had a, a four concert series for $50. And my parents, I begged my parents to, to buy two tickets for myself and my best friend at the time. And we saw Asia, Eric Clapton, A Flock of Seagulls, and The Spoons for something like $8 a concert. Oh, wow. and, that's, and from then on in, it was just, you know, going out as much as I possibly could to go see concerts. I still pay for concert tickets to this day. I don't get any freebies. I always pay my way. I just don't want anybody to owe me any favors or vice versa. But, you know, as I get older, you know, the, uh, you know I, I, I tend not to see a lot of the artists I've already seen a, a dozen or two times. So now I just get to hang out with my 17-year-old daughter and go see, you know, the Chainsmokers or Post Malone or Selena Gomez. And I have a blast doing that too. Yeah, did you mention you said a Genesis earlier? Yeah, yeah, I've seen them about uh, 20, 25 times. Yeah, because I'm looking here, I remember it, it stuck in my head. They played at the BMO Field in 2007. BMO Field in, in what year? 2007. 2007. Probably, that was probably. I know that they played the air, they played the Rogers Center, which was the Sky Dome at the time. And that was their last giant tour. And I think the 2007 tour, that might've been, yeah, yeah. it might've been that. Yeah, it's all kind of a blur, but that first show, absolutely. I mean, two shows stand out. The first show I ever saw, which was the Abacab tour, which they turned into Three Sides Live, the live album, yeah. and then the Invisible Touch tour, where they were seemingly the biggest band on the planet with Phil Collins as one of the biggest solo artists ever in history. So that was just a massive tour because that just culminated into, holy smokes, this band is big. Yeah, I think I, that's the only BMO Field concert I can really remember ever happening. Yeah, I don't remember that one, but if you ask me what I had for dinner yesterday, I would probably <laughs> have to make up something because I don't remember that one either. How about independence right, independent bands right now? Who are some you think people should know? 
Um, you know what? There's there's certainly a lot of bands out there for every style and taste. I think the the secret is to try to not get overwhelmed by the sheer amount and to try to remember how we used to shop for music back in the day. If if people remember that, it's a matter of asking those people whose music collection that you do like and ask them what they're listening to. Um, but there's a number of artists that that I love. Like I think. Chelsea Stewart, who was nominated uh, for in the reggae category. She's one of the youngest people ever be nominated for a Juno Award. I think she's bringing reggae music and, and you know, to the forefront again in, in Canada. This country back in the 80s and 90s were, you know, had so much amazing reggae music with the satellites, among others. So I think that she's doing some amazing work. Um, there's a band called Glass Reel out of Winnipeg. That's a folk band. They're doing some amazing work, too. Mickelin from Guelph, Ontario. I love, I found her on Spotify. Um, she's got something like a million and a half streams and she does a lot of dance and electronic music. And, and I kind of love that. And I love her voice too, because it reminds me of, of dancing all night to the rave scene, tripping on whatever I, I used at the time. <laughs> and then, um, you know, but there's still like a lot of the bands that I grew up that, that I did listen to for years, like the Small Glories out of Winnipeg. They're a folk duo. I think Theo, uh, Theo Tams is putting out some really original music and people may remember him from, from Canadian Idol. I right. think he's really daring right now. And I think he, he's, he's, you know, putting out some really strong material. Um, so it seems like a lot of, you know, I'm always finding new, new music. I get stuff all the time through Submit Hub or Groover and people send me music all day and all night long from around the world. And I'm happy to listen to them all because that's what I love to do. You mentioned American Hot Wax. Are there any other concert movies or documentaries that stand out as your favorites? Yeah, you know, there, there, there's a number of movies that I love. It's uh, 20 Feet from Stardom tells the story of backup singers and the kind of psychological things that they have to go through when they may not be the superstar and they may not be in the spotlight. The Oasis documentary, I think, is one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my entire life because I just love them dearly. The Beyonce documentary is stunning. The Miss America one from Taylor Swift is completely revealing to somebody who loves to manipulate everything about her to make sure that we're all thinking the same thing when it comes to Taylor Swift. So I love that, thinking that, you know, how calculated and what a big risk taker she is because when you get to that level, you know, you really can't afford to make any mistakes. And yeah, there, there's a whole bunch of them that, you know, whenever I'm bored, the Eagle documentary is amazing. If anybody's got six hours worth of time, to spend, <laughs> even if you don't like the Eagles, just realizing how much they hated one another and then fell back into it is great. The George Harrison documentary is amazing from a guy who was completely underappreciated in the world's biggest and best band in the world. He seems to have a, a, you know, a second and a third and a fourth life after his passing, uh, reaching new people all the time. And this documentary will tell you why he's so great. So, you know, you just got to go to Netflix and speak to your little remote and say music documentary and up will come more music documentary than you can handle. That was uh, Eagles that you mentioned? Which one? Eagles. Oh, yeah. The Eagle documentary, the uh, Hell Freezes Over one. Yeah, was that yeah. that was a '94 tour, right? Yeah, yeah, and then they actually did a documentary uh, about ten years ago or so, just talking about you know how the band got started and and working and hanging out with Linda Rodstad and Jackson Brown and the whole you know light California scene, and uh, uh, it's pretty amazing because you realize 
how to the edge they they were and uh you know like the thing is like i'm not really a big fan of the eagles but i like the eagles you know i'm not really i would never put on an eagles record partly because every time i turn in the car they're always on Um, (laughs) but you know they're a perfect example of working out the publicist why i love bands and why i love music is because the stories behind those songs and the stories that they get to tell about one another and each other and themselves fascinates me because you know what happens when you know five guys dream about being a success and then suddenly have 300 million dollars in their bank account and what it does to them i mean that stuff is awesome yeah, I think I remember back in 94 hearing that that reunion tour was the world's first $100 ticket. Yeah, yeah, it was. And, uh, you know, people were like, I'm not going to this. And it was like, that's okay. There's a lot of people that did and a lot of people that still do. And that's the thing, you know, that was one of the first concerts to to uh, to break that $100 ticket mark and, and kind of let the floodgates open and told all the superstar artists and the booking agents and their managers and the record labels not to leave money on the table. If you're wealthy and you can afford it, or if you want to save up, then maybe you should be able to spend $750 on front row tickets and the person behind you will get to spend $600 and the, the next 12 rows will spend $400. It's, it's, it's a strange industry or it's a strange part of the industry where, you know, there's not a set price for anything because, you know, when they did that, it was still the same price for a book, but different books of the same title had different prices, but it was the same book. Yeah. Um, and the music industry kind of took a page from the rest of the industry. And we see that in movie theaters. Now you want to go see a movie and it's just regular in a, in a regular screen with regular seats and, and, First come, first serve, amazing. That's $13. You want your seat to shake and go up and down? That's $20. Yeah. If you want to buy advanced tickets, well, they'll charge you $3.50 for that ability too. And, uh, and that's okay. I, I, you know, it's a capitalist society. It's a capitalist world that we're, we're, we're living in. Up until the, the, the coronavirus, and then it just kind of went all haywire from there. Well, that's the thing, right? Because even before the lockdown, maybe for, for the past five, 10 years, there were like, multiple tiers for the biggest tours you could get like you were saying the backstage before the show you could pay to get the uh i don't know a, a pick from yeah the uh, tour and the laminate and the meet and greet and yeah and the, the, the downloadable for anybody else yeah yeah you pay for access to stuff and you think that that sort of thing will be back with a vengeance once we're all back in this no no, because I, I think that the artists more than any than any other group of people will be far more terrified of getting the coronavirus, even if there is a vaccine, than <laughs> anybody else. I, I, I think it's okay to one day do a show with 20,000 people in the audience, maybe. I mean, we may not even be there. I mean, who's to say that the Rogers Center may actually be able to have, you know, a 50,000 seat concert? Maybe they're going to be forced by the government and by law to have no more than 15,000 people because every seat needs to be six feet away from one another. Who's to say that you actually have to show proof in order to sit with one another and then the next person might be 12 feet away from you with their family. You know, this is a whole new ball game and a whole new way of thinking that we're going to have to have. But I'll tell you, if I'm Justin Bieber or Ariana Grande or or The Weeknd or older artists like Roger Waters or The Eagles or or the Rolling Stones, and I'm up in my 70s, there's no, and 80s, 
There's no yeah. way I'm meeting people from the general public anymore. No way. Because not only am I worried that I'm going to die, but the insurance cost to do right. that is going to be astronomical that people aren't just going to be able to do that. No, they'll, they'll, they'll do something else. They'll do, you know, anything from, you know, for $100 more or $500 more, you'll get into sound check where you will be way over there on the oh, back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, or that here's a free digital download of a concert tour that we've never released from back 1977. Okay. Or, you know, here's a, an autographed copy of a, of a vinyl record of our new release. They'll do something where, but the actual, you know, hands around each other's shoulders, pretending like we yeah. know one another, I think that's going to be long gone. Interesting. Did you mention the an Oasis documentary? Yeah, the Oasis documentary is, is probably one of the funniest things I've ever seen because I love Liam and Noel Gallagher. I mean, not only do I love the band dearly and their solo stuff separately, but I think just when they get together, they just might be the funniest comedy duo since Laurel and Hardy. I mean, they're just amazing. Yeah, I'm, gonna have, I'm definitely going to have to take a look at that one. Yeah, you have to put your uh, subtitles on there because you won't understand the word that they're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I, it's funny because... Um... Oh, yeah, there's so many stories back then when people were just hailing this as a second coming when they were just coming up. Mm, they were. I mean, for, for a generation that, that grew up with Duran Duran and Talk Talk and, and Tears for Fears and The Spoons and a lot of new wave stuff, here, you know, fast forward 15, 20 years, and here come the Oasis playing guitars and playing rock music, you know, and that kind of led to you know, around that time of the grunge era and Pearl Jam and Nirvana and Soundgarden and Tad and Sonic Youth, uh, you know, for the, uh, for, for so many people that was ground zero for their, for their rock and roll and their punk. And then here comes two brothers who think that they're the greatest band in the history of the world. And they've only put out two songs. I'm buying into that. I love that. I mean, cause they knew exactly what to do to get the attention of the enemy and Melody Maker and Q and Mojo. And, and not only that, they put together some of the best memorable songs in UK music history. And so I, I, I bought all in. I mean, I saw them at Lee's Palace for the first time for their first North American oh, wow. tour back in 1991, I'm going to say. Uh, and I just stood there with my mouth open with a, with a big puddle of, of goo coming out <laughs> of my mouth. It was like, I, I couldn't believe not only how, how, how loud they were, but that I'm never going to get to see this band in a small club again. There's, there's a handful of artists where I can say this band is going to be huge. And I guessed right. There's certainly a lot more bands that I said that about that didn't come out to be true, but Oasis was one where I wish I bought stock in them because I would have been, I would have been wealthy. Well, yeah, it's funny because even back in the seventies, I remember hearing a lot of people seeing Kiss as an opening act and thought these guys are going nowhere. Yeah, you know, people thought that when they saw Prince open up for the Rolling Stones tour. So, you know, never judge, never underestimate the uh, prediction ability of, our, of, of, of audiences as well. Um, I don't have too much else here. I don't want to take too much more of your evening, but are there any other artists you're working with? Anything you want to kind of put out there before we finish up? No, you, you know what? I just, you know, there, there's always some fascinating stuff that, that's going on out there. Shane Coulter is a country artist from just north of, of Toronto. He's putting together some of the greatest country songs of the last 10 or 15 years. And he's pretty media savvy as well. 
let's see, it's just off, off the top of my head. You know, if you like country, Kelsey Maine plays second on the Sirius XM Taste of the Country competition. For the most part, I, I listen to a bunch of radio stations and, and they always play amazing music. I listen to The Current in Minneapolis. I listen to KEXP in Seattle online. Um, and they'll play Aretha Franklin mixed with Sisters of Mercy, mixed with Oasis, and, you know, some brand new local band that just kind of blows my mind. So I love that kind of stuff. That was my interview with Eric Alper, music correspondent, blogger, radio host, and operator of that Eric Alper public relations company. Thanks so much. This has been Cambrio for cambriomusic.com.